Thursday, February 23rd, was a big day in security news. Details were published about the cloud bleed bug, which leaked tons of plain text requests from across the internet into plain view. On the same day, the first collision attack against SHA-1 was demonstrated by researchers at Google, foretelling the demise of SHA-1 as a safe hashing function. What does this mean for the average engineer? What are the implications for regular internet users? How do these services, Cloudflare and SHA-1, I realize SHA-1 is not exactly a service, how do these things work? Well, Haseeb Qureshi interviews Max Burkhart, a security researcher at Airbnb, in this episode to get to the bottom of what exactly happened, what it means, and how it affects the security of web applications. Thanks to Haseeb for doing this episode on a whim because this was some breaking news that I think will be of great value to the Software Engineering Daily listeners. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode with Haseeb Qureshi and Max Burkhardt. Hi, so my guest today is Max Burkhardt. Max is a security engineer at Airbnb. Max, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Yeah. Pleased to be here. Oh, I'm really glad to have you. So I, I kind of got you on fairly short notice. I only told you about this a couple of days ago. But I want to talk to you. So right now we're, we're talking basically the weekend after CloudLead, and mm-hmm. which has obviously been a pretty huge event in kind of security issues. And there are actually two major issues that I wanted to discuss today. I want to start by talking with CloudBleed, and I wanted to eventually get to talking about how Google created a SHA-1 collision. I want to dive into some of the technical aspects and kind of what they mean. But before we do that, let's start by scaring people and trying to make this relevant so they understand exactly what went wrong and why they should be terrified. So before we get into any of the details, uh, I want to know why I should be scared that all this stuff happened. Yeah, so it's been a really exciting week for security news. But in, in a pretty dark way, there's been some big flaws in sort of underlying internet architecture that have been discovered. So CloudBleed is really worrying because there's a bunch of pretty high profile sites, some of which handle sensitive information, which could have had sensitive information leaked. And that includes passwords or session tokens or private communications. So there's a possibility that there's a lot of sensitive information or credentials floating out there and it's unknown who has found it. So that's really scary from the, the CloudBleed issue. On the SHA-1 side, a cryptographic hash function that's been used sort of in a bunch of protocols intended to be a secure hashing function has been shown not to be as, well, the first big collision was was found. And this has been theorized about for a while, but now the writing's truly on the wall for that hash function. It is not secure. Okay, so these are both two events with pretty big implications for Mm -hmm. how we think about security and, and I think a lot of the assumptions that we make about security. So let's start by delving into what exactly happened with CloudBleed. So for those who don't know, CloudBleed was a bug found in Cloudflare, particularly their HTML parser, which ended up having a bunch of effects of leaking a bunch of sensitive data. So Mm -hmm. in order to understand what exactly happened, I think we need to start by, for those who don't know, can you explain what is Cloudflare? What do they do? Yeah, so Cloudflare is a content delivery network, or CDN. So basically, they proxy traffic for major websites and use a layer of front-end reverse proxy servers to help serve content more efficiently. They have DDoS protection services and can really help reduce the load on a a back-end web service. So they handle a lot of web traffic across the internet, and so flaws in that layer can be very wide-reaching. So why do so many why do so many sites use something like Cloudflare? Like why can't they just 
kind of do all this sort of stuff themselves? Well, Cloudflare is able to leverage a few things. They have technology which is specifically designed to cache stuff effectively. They have servers across the world, so they can usually ensure there's a a local edge near to where a user is requesting the data. And so that's pretty helpful. It's infrastructure that a company may not want to set up for themselves. So they do provide a good service there. And they have also had a history of being very good on the DDoS protection front. So I think they're pretty popular for that reason as well. Okay, and pretty briefly, can you explain how does Cloudflare protect against DDoS attacks? How does it actually do that? I don't know the internals of their functionality, but first of all, they've got a lot of capacity, a lot more than a you know a startup or a company might be able to have themselves. And they also have a few ways to detect bot attacks, slow those bot attacks down, try and ensure there's real users that are sending traffic and sort of filter it so that the people who are legitimately using the site get through and then the attack doesn't. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this is this is like a pretty critical piece of internet infrastructure. Yeah. And I know that there are a few other competitors, but Cloudflare has a big chunk of mm-hmm. the Alexa top 1,000 websites that, mm-hmm. they, that they service. So a large portion of the internet runs through Cloudflare. What are some of the major sites that you know of that use Cloudflare? Yeah, so I was looking through kind of a, a list of the potential victims and some of the ones that stood out to me, and I'll mention briefly why I think these were important, sort of in alphabetical order here, Authy, which stores two-factor tokens for many users, uses Cloudflare. Coinbase, one of the the better Bitcoin exchanges, also uses Cloudflare. Medium, you know, many company blogs are on there. Credential leaks could be really problematic on that side. OkCupid, which of course has a lot of private information that you don't necessarily want leaking. Uber, which there's a lot of potential financial benefit to getting a lot of fake accounts or compromising a lot of accounts. And 1Password. 1Password was very concerning right away to a lot of people. Because, you know, password vaults, like if, if someone's master password is leaked, that could be really, you know, devastating. One password has come out and said that they have additional mitigations which make it so that this is not a huge issue for them. It's obviously something that's concerning, but just because you have one password doesn't necessarily mean that you need to panic right now. Right. Okay. So the way that all this was actually discovered, this was discovered fairly recently by Tavis Ormandy, who works for Google's mm-hmm. Project Zero. He sort of Tell me as best you can the story of how this was discovered, what happened, how long it took for all this information to become public. Can you sort of spin that yarn for me? Yeah, yeah. So it was really sort of a by chance thing. This story is based off of Tavis's account in the bug report that he filed. And basically, Google does a lot of fuzzing projects. So fuzzing is where you basically throw random data at some sort of process and see if you can get it to crash or reveal any sort of you know, parsing vulnerability, it's a really popular and effective way to find security vulnerabilities. And so Google does all this fuzzing, but for effective fuzzing, you usually need a corpus of data to modify and tweak in order to use in your fuzzing attack. And Tavis was working on looking at websites and, you know, making them into good test cases for Google's fuzzing objectives. So in this process of taking web pages from around the internet and kind of looking at their code and cleaning them up and making sure they were good test cases, he started seeing really unusual stuff. And this usually would manifest as things like blobs of binary data being returned in HTML pages or, you know, things that looked like HTTP headers that were showing up. And pretty quickly, there appeared to be a big issue here. So before long, Tavis, as well as some other Google Project Zero folks, were able to determine that this appeared to happen on certain Cloudflare customers when the page that was requested had some tag imbalances. So basically, you know, HTML generally has a form that you have an open tag and a closed tag. And in some cases, when a tag was not closed properly, there was this weird stuff showing up. 
And so that's kind of how it was discovered. It was, it was trying to make a corpus of data to use in a fuzzing project. And suddenly things were looking weird. And very quickly, Tavis was able to get in contact with Cloudflare in order to figure out what was going on. Okay. So what is the standard procedure in that case? Like if, you, if you're a security researcher, you come across something that looks like a pretty grave bug. Yeah. What are you supposed to do in that case? Yeah. So in this case, Tavis went to Twitter. A lot of the security communities on Twitter almost all of it, really. And Tavis has a large Twitter following. So he was able to get in contact with, you know, senior security person at Cloudflare very, very quickly, which is great that that worked out in that case. But we don't all have the same Twitter following that Tavis does. Right. If you are trying to report what looks like a big security issue to a company, trying to go to bug bounty programs can be a good place to start. Those are generally monitored by security staff, and perhaps you'll even get a bounty for reporting something. It's also sort of convention that the email address security at and then the domain of the company generally would go to some sort of queue for the security team to look at. That's sort of been the convention, at least. Yeah. So when Tavis discovered this, though, he didn't come out and and publicly declare that this was going on. He contacted Cloudflare directly Mm -hmm. and then waited a period of time before any of this was made public. Why did he do that? And why is that? Is that generally the practice in security? Yeah. So this is a debate that has raged really since the beginning of the security industry. And it's it's called the responsible disclosure debate. And, Mm -hmm. And the basic two sides are if you find a bug and you work with the creator of the software to get it fixed, then you can probably have a patch out before the general public knows about it. Right. And that's good. The other side says if you just release publicly, this applies the most pressure and allows people to immediately start acting to protect themselves and also really ensures that the company or group that is producing the software really moves to solve it as quickly as possible because everyone knows that they're vulnerable. So Google Project Zero has a policy for responsible disclosure. It's, I think, a pretty good one. Basically, they will contact companies or groups privately about issues they found and Basically, there's a series of deadlines by which a company has to either respond or get it fixed or give reasoning for not fixing it yet. And if one of those deadlines has failed enough, there will be a public release. In this case, I think it was about one week in between Cloudflare being contacted and them coming out with a public blog post. Though I will note that Cloudflare was able to sort of stop the bleeding in most cases in about 47 minutes after hearing about it. So they did move very quickly on mitigation. Right. So when you say stop the bleeding, can Mm -hmm. can you be clear what exactly did they do to stop the bleeding and what bleeding stopped? Yeah. So the issue, as it turns out, was that Cloudflare does some amount of HTTP or HTML rewriting on some of the content that passes through their servers. So they use Nginx as their reverse proxy layer. And they have some custom modules that if a customer has requested it, they can do some rewriting. And so this rewriting is things like changing email addresses to like sort of conceal them from the public internet or, you know, there's a variety of things that Cloudflare can do, usually from a security perspective to try and automatically upgrade the security of a site. So this rewriting means that the Cloudflare Nginx server has to parse the HTML being returned and change it before sending it on to the user. Right. Cloudflare had recently introduced a new module for doing this rewriting and an interesting, rather subtle sort of interaction between this new module and the old one made it so that when certain Cloudflare features were enabled, the rewriter module would read past the end of an internal Nginx buffer when returning a response and could potentially produce output that is from some other request somewhere in the memory of that Nginx process, which could include HTTP requests from any Cloudflare customer. So, so, so to be clear, mm-hmm. so to be clear, 
you know, so these Cloudflare servers are serving requests from, let's say, 25% of the top 1,000 Alexa sites. Mm-hmm. And for some sites, they may enable Cloudflare to do certain HTML rewriting on mm-hmm. the fly as they're serving pages. So for those customers who enabled this, because of this bug in this HTML parsing, occasionally this triggered some buffer overruns. It read from other parts of memory, which could have leaked any request from any of the other servers, any of the other yeah. requests that were being fed to that server. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So just whether or not you had these features enabled doesn't change whether or not your stuff was leaked. It was just whether or not your site could be used as a vector for this. So when you asked me earlier, like, what does stop the bleeding mean in this case? When Cloudflare heard about this, I think they were pretty quickly able to guess kind of what the issue was. They had recently enabled this new rewriter module. And so they basically flipped a kill switch and disabled it. And that covered most of the likely cases where this could happen. I believe it was about four hours before they basically able to ship a code change that made it so that the vulnerable path was never followed, regardless of configuration like state. So, so they did move very quickly on that, and they were able to guess pretty quickly what the problem was. And that's sort of a, a critical thing in a lot of this sort of security response stuff is even before understanding the exact details of the overrun, which were quite technical and subtle in this case, they were able to kind of figure out why it might be happening and and stop it altogether before having to understand the exact details of the vulnerability. So you explained very briefly that this was caused by a buffer overrun bug in the parser code. Can you explain very briefly what is a buffer overrun and how it ended up having these consequences? Yeah, so buffer overruns are a pretty common issue in code that's written in C or C++, older C++ that is. And basically the issue is that in a language that does not automatically manage memory or automatically keep track of pointers for you, usually when you're reading from memory, you you know start at a particular address and then you read for some length of bytes. And if you try and read past the end of that buffer, there's nothing that will actually stop you. So basically you try and create these control structures such that you know when you start reading an address, you'll only read as far as that buffer is allocated and therefore you only get the data that you intended and not anything else that just might be lying in memory at the time. However, you know, going back to you know the top programming errors of all time, these sorts of things tend to be very vulnerable to things like one-off errors. So in this case, the whole thing could have been stopped had there been a greater than or equals comparator instead of an equals comparator on a particular line. Basically, there was a pointer that was pointing to where memory should be read from, where to start with. And in certain cases, that pointer could get slightly more than the like maximum value. But the mm-hmm. comparator was only looking at whether or not that pointer was the maximum value. It didn't consider the possibility that it might be able to skip over. And so when the C program started to read. It started to read from past the buffer and then continue you know, as far as it thought was, was appropriate based on the type of routine. So basically, suddenly, memory that was not intended for this use is being returned in this response. And that really could be anything. It's very hard to predict what sorts of things might be in a heap at any given time. And so the consequences of this bug are very wide-reaching and, and scary. So that, that's kind of the basics of, of how this occurred. Right. So let's say this bug is happening, right? Like it's basically randomly dumping memory from some arbitrary place in the heap. Of course, half the time that you're reading arbitrary data in the heap, it's going to be completely meaningless. It's not actually going to be some usefully parsable data from Mm -hmm. something, but some of the time it is. Why wasn't this data from other requests sent by, you know, for example, Uber or 1Password or whatever, why was it not encrypted? So 
Cloudflare actually does their TLS termination at a different layer. So the servers that did this HTML parsing and rewriting didn't actually touch TLS at all. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is that there was no chance that a customer's TLS certificate private key could be leaked in this because these boxes never had it. They were looking at plain text traffic. The bad thing is that, yes, the traffic was in plain text at that point, And so any requests that were in memory were just readable. So why is Cloudflare terminating the SSL? Because presumably, is SSL then again established between Cloudflare and the, the website serving the content? Almost 100% of the time, yes. That's how it should be set up. I assume that Cloudflare is doing that. You know, Cloudflare will not send your traffic, you know, randomly over the internet unencrypted, but right. frequently it is terminated at a CDN layer for performance reasons, and that's just how a lot of CDNs are run. I see. Okay. So to be clear, so we talked about how immediately once Cloudflare realized what was going on, they found the root cause, they shut it all off. What then did they have to do, given that now they have discovered that all of this data is kind of floating out on the internet? What are the implications of that, and what did they do for remediation? Yeah, so the really nasty thing here is that once you change this code, then theoretically you can't, you wouldn't be able to produce this bug anymore or read any more requests. But the problem here was places where data that had been served in the past might still be accessible, and that really meant the search engine caches. So search engines crawl websites, they keep the information that they see there in order to index it and maybe serve cache versions of those pages later, etc. So if a search crawler had hit any of these sites that did have the vulnerable configuration options and therefore were serving up random bits of memory, those might be saved in the cache. And this is this is really scary because not only is it pretty hard to detect what pages might be vulnerable to this or what might indicate that this was happening, but also there's so many search engines and there's so many people who are scraping the web all the time for storage. So because the bug was discovered inside Google, Google started working on trying to purge this from caches as soon as possible, but it's it's very difficult too because you just have HTML page and then there might be some weird data in that, but it's really hard to tell if that's just the web page intentionally being weird or mm. if Cloudflare had accidentally slipped memory in there. And so I think that basically they took an approach of trying to come up with a bunch of heuristics that seemed to really indicate that there was a leak and then purging things from the caches when those heuristics fired. The sort of advantage there is that, you know, removing a cached copy of a page from Google's database is not that damaging of an action. You know, it'll get regenerated next time the crawler gets there. So you aren't really destroying anything permanently. And I think that Cloudflare has been working with other search engines to try and do the same thing for their cached cache pages, but you know, there's a lot of them these days, and it's, it's difficult to ensure that this has been done properly. We also don't know how many people are just scraping the internet for other reasons and might have this sort of thing lying around. Right. Okay. So this is obviously a big problem because you know, data is not just cached by search engines, but it's also cached by DNSs, it's cached by browsers, it's cached by routers, right? And so now mm-hmm. this, from what I understand, these plain text requests that were being sent over the internet are now cached all over the internet, not just by Google. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So let me understand now. So given that, you know, we have a big problem now, we're trying to clean up all this data, try to scrub whatever it is that we can find, even though it's quite hard to find exactly where, which web pages were affected and how we can clean out these caches. Give me an idea of what exactly is the attack vector now. Let's say you're an attacker and you know all this data is somewhere out there. What can you actually do? What damage can you actually do with it? Yeah, so it's tough because you have to actually find find data that's useful to you. And sort of a saving grace in this, it's, it's difficult to target this attack, right? The data that was being returned by Cloudflare is semi-random. You know, it's just kind of whatever was on the heap at the time. So you couldn't say, like, I want to go 
find content from OkCupid and, you know, figure out exactly how to get that. It was just sort of probably evenly spread based on how much traffic was passing through. So you just kind of have to try and collect as much data you can about the requests that were served by Cloudflare during this vulnerable time. And I should note, it's not like Cloudflare has been doing this forever. The earliest time it could have happened would be September of 2016, when this started to be introduced. And it would have happened at very low rates until I think February 13th, at which case some changes happened where it started happening a lot more. Hmm. So really as an attacker, you'd have to try and find some big collection of cached pages and start crawling through that. When I heard about this, I first thought of archive.org which I thought might not be as quick to be able to purge these things because they're a volunteer project. They can't just assign a security team to go do it. I don't know how true that is. Hopefully they're on the job of trying to clear out this sensitive information. Right. So you mentioned that, you know, as this bug was out in the wild, it seems like a very, very small percentage of the traffic from these affected sites was actually leaked because this was a very low-frequency bug. And, of course, it was just spewing random memory. It didn't necessarily mm-hmm. spew any given request. Mm-hmm. So given that there was such a low rate of potential compromise, what should the potentially affected sites do about this? Like if you're Uber or if you're OkCupid, what should you do? Yeah, this is a tricky one. So the percentage of requests that were affected is quite low, true. But Cloudflare also processes a lot of traffic, and they gave the number of requests affected as a percentage of, or percentage likelihood of any particular request, you know, having a problem, and they process a lot of requests. So I think the number of, the amount of data that's been leaked is actually quite large. This guess is based off of kind of some screenshots redacted that Tavis was posting in that bug thread, and it looks like there's a lot of stuff that has gotten out there. So I would advocate for sites that have been affected to this to reset sessions at least. So basically, you know, most websites that remember your login establish some sort of session token in your browser or your phone, and that has some sort of lifetime on the server. Expiring those and making people log in again, I think would be a reasonable step. It's not the greatest UI. People don't love logging in, but it is a way to show your users that you want to be that you're watching out for them, that you're trying to help ensure that their stuff isn't going to get compromised. Even though it's unlikely that it's been compromised, you're kind of watching out for them. So I would advocate for a session reset, at least. Password resets are like sort of the next step you could go from there. That's a pretty nasty one because people really don't like changing their passwords. I'm not sure I would always advocate that. Depending on the sort of data you're processing, you might be able to make that call. Like maybe if Authy determined that they had evidence that their data was being leaked or passwords might be leaked, forcing a password reset there could be reasonable. Again, this is all sort of a risk calculation, so it depends on what you're storing, you know, how many sessions would be affected, and sort of what a user would be required to do in order to get back and using your service. It is situational, uh, but I would generally advocate for a session reset at least. Right. So it's possible, of course, that if somebody was logging in, their password would have been in plain text and then leaked That's if right. that was one of the requests that was, that was leaked. But for most of the requests, there is going to be, basically, you can, if you take this person's session token, you can essentially impersonate them That's on right. most of these sites, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes sense intuitively. So I want to ask you how you think Cloudflare handled the bug. It seemed like a pretty big one. It seemed like a pretty big, scary event. For somebody who's a security engineer, it's probably gone through a lot of these sort of, you know, like all the fire alarms going off type event. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. They were able to triage the initial issue very quickly. They were responsive to Tavis, and they were able to stop new data from being released rather quickly. In Tavis's bug report, he expresses some frustration at the time it takes them to publish a public blog post and sort of the language they use. 
you know, I, I see where he's coming from. He wanted it to be a little more scary because this is indeed a scary bug. But at the same time, I'm guessing that it wasn't an engineer who wrote most of that. You know, these sorts of releases are very, you know, curated things by legal and public, you know, public relations and some engineering. And so there's a lot of things that change in there. I think they did a good job of responding to the incident. It sounds like really what caused this was them trying to migrate their parsing and rewriting infrastructure something much more modern and probably, well, hopefully more secure. So it's not like they were doing this. This happened because of, you know, extreme negligence on their part or anything. So I, I think I think they handled it pretty well. So do you think there'll be any fallout for them after this bug sort of like you know, the dust sort of settles? It's really hard to say. Measuring security fallout is tough. You know, it's certainly bad press. And they were in many ways sort of angling for the security focused segment of the CDN market. That's kind of what they were targeting. And this is going to hurt their efforts a lot in that respect. Because, you know, the, the subtleties of this bug may not be apparent to all purchasers. They'll just hear that Cloudflare had a cloud bleed and yeah, maybe change <laughs> providers. Sure, sure. And so I think there may be some fallout there. But my hope is that, you know, the openness they showed in responding to it can, you know, help reassure people that, you know, they're going to be implementing procedures to make sure this never happens again or something like that. Gotcha. So before we move on, I, just, I want to ask sort of one obviously very important question. If you are somebody who uses any of these services that potentially were affected by Cloudflare, what should you do? I'd advocate changing your passwords. So just as a quick recap, the ones that I would be most concerned about are Authy, Coinbase, Medium, OkCupid, Uber, or 1Password. It is a little bit of a pain, but it's just you know not worth the risk. And obviously, if you are using the same password on those sites as other things, it may be time to do larger rotations. This may be a good time to grab a password manager and start transitioning over to that if you haven't already. I can actually highly recommend 1Password. It's, it's a fantastic password manager product. Great. And so what do you think, you know, trying to sort of put some kind of a bow on this, what do you think are the lessons for the security community after seeing what happened with Cloudly? Yeah, so the response from a lot of people, and I agree with this, is, you know, this is just, you know, exhibit 5,322 or whatever of using C is dangerous. Mm. C's been with us a long time. It's fast, frequently used in this sort of like, you know, need to be real fast CDN type technology, but it's really not safe. The work that Mozilla is doing with Rust seems like it's providing a fantastic alternative to those sorts of system languages that still lets you code safely. And you know, eliminate this sort of bug class entirely. Like, you won't hear about buffer overruns in a Java program, and right. it'll be a lot harder to do it in a Rust program, too. So I think we just need to continue that migration of taking things that were written in these old languages that aren't that safe and move them over to things that are much more modern. In web security, we talk a lot about trying to use frameworks to help ensure that writing bugs is really hard and you know, covering these bug classes automatically at a framework level, and languages can provide that in some cases. Theoretically, your language should be able to just sort of end the concept of buffer overruns entirely. Right, right. That makes sense. But one thing that also occurs to me as being one weird consequence of this particular bug is that I feel like consumers are becoming more and more sensitive and, and almost more fatigued by all of these all of these events that keep happening where their passwords get leaked here, the, you know, this site gets attacked, this that site gets attacked. And I think the, you know, I think sites are very sensitive now to the idea of like, hey, we're going to reset everybody's password because people are afraid users might think that it was their fault or that mm -hmm. they, in fact, were compromised when some common piece of infrastructure was actually compromised. Mm -hmm. And I sense that that's part of what makes this situation so tricky 
is that, you know, for example, for Uber, a very, very small portion of all of their traffic was potentially getting leaked. But to reset all of the passwords on Uber would, would make it seem like something really catastrophic had happened. Yeah. That was Uber's fault. So, you know, working as you do for a tech company and having the particular incentives, how do you see that sort of game being played? And, and do you think that's going to change at all? Yeah. And, and I think this is, you know, that discussion is happening at all these, at all these companies. Like, what is the risk that we think our users are under? At what point do we make that call of, you know, security above all things? Or is this risk we can accept in, you know, keep user sessions alive? So there's a lot of things you can do to try and mitigate this sort of risk. Like, first of all, there are many companies which have done really great things in kind of adding analysis to user sessions and user activities to figure out when something might be weird, like if a user has been compromised. So this can be a really powerful tool in the case that you might have some sort of session breach that isn't your fault. You can maybe like tweak the parameters on those analyses and say, okay, well, now that we know sessions might be at risk, let's be extra sensitive to sessions that are used in one geographic place one second and then, you know, something radically different, you know, a few seconds later. Like that mm-hmm. is an indication of something a little suspicious and maybe we should, you know, ask that particular user to change their password or confirm something on their phone. And so those sorts of soft security features where it's not necessarily a hard requirement but a way to detect that some sort of compromise may have occurred can be really come in handy around these times. And so when building a product that has user logins, I think this is something that people should think about implementing way sooner than many people do, is the ability to kind of introspect sessions that exist and consider when one might be acting strangely. Right. Okay. So, okay, let's transition from CloudBleed to talking about the other big piece of news that came out mm-hmm. last Thursday, which is Google's SHA-1 collision. So let's start with the absolute basics. I'm, I'm going to assume that you know maybe a listener might not have any understanding at all of what, what exactly is the big news here. Let's start from the simplest block. What is a cryptographic hash function to begin with? Yeah, so a cryptographic hash function is a one-way function that takes some arbitrary blob of data, some string of bytes, and transforms it into a hash, which is usually a pretty short string of bytes that you know, is u- unique to that blob, theoretically. So the idea is that you cannot take a hashed version of data and turn it back into the original version. And there's some other properties that cryptographic hash functions are supposed to hold, and they can sort of come down to like non-predictability. Like you shouldn't be able to easily fake hashes if you don't know what the original thing was. Or you want to be able to say, if I hash file A and something else hashes to file A, that's file A. Gotcha. Okay, so it's it's like a unique signature that gets created. That's the file. idea, yes. Okay. Now, if you think about it mathematically, if you're taking any string of bytes and reducing it to a fixed string of bytes that is pretty small, then theoretically there must be more than one thing that can collapse to that shorter string of bytes. You can't, you right. know, it's not infinite compression. But the mm-hmm. idea is that it's very hard to exploit that or find something that that sort of collision occurs. Okay, I see. So can you explain just very briefly, what's the difference between hashing and encryption? Yeah, so encryption is a two-way function. So when you take a file and encrypt it, the theory is that you can then take that encrypted version of the file and go back to the original one if you have the key. If you have a hash, no one should be able to go back from the hash to the original file. And hashes are really more about identification than protection. A hash will also you know, irreversibly change the data that was in the original file. You, you wouldn't be able to understand anything about the content of that file based on its hash. Right, okay. So... You know, cryptographic hash functions, there's not just one. Obviously, there are a large number of, of hash functions. Why are there so many? What's the 
Like, how do I choose among cryptographic hash functions? Why doesn't one just clearly win? Well, there's a lot. And I think a lot of that is just because they get introduced over time. So we've been writing hash functions since, you know, before the 90s. And as computing power increases and as cryptographic research increases, sometimes we find they're bad. And then it's time to move to a new one. And so you kind of get this littered trail of broken hash functions in, in the wake of technological progress. And the tricky thing that makes hash functions stay around is that maybe one gets popular for a few years. And so it gets implemented in all the libraries and frameworks and languages. And so it becomes very easy to use. But then when a weakness or a break is discovered, suddenly it can be hard to get everything to switch over. So you've probably heard of MD5, which is a very well-broken hash function. 75 was introduced, I think, around 1991 and was totally broken around 2004. But it's still used in some places because, you know, everything implements it. It was very, it was very popular in, like, the early 90s and, and like, maybe even early 2000s. So you say MD5 was totally broken. What, mm -hmm. Can you explain what that, what does that mean? What can an attacker do if they know I'm using MD5 to hash something? Yeah, so I'll go quickly through like kind of the three qualities of cryptographic hash functions that are important. There's, there's collision resistance, which is where you shouldn't be able to make two messages that hash to the same thing. That's a collision. That's what Google discovered in SHA-1 last week. There's second pre-image resistance, which is where if you have a, a message that you're going to hash, it would be hard to find another message that hashes to the same thing. And there's pre-image resistance, which is given a hash, it would be hard to find a message that computes to that hash. So not all of these qualities have been broken for MD5, but many of them have. So it's generally considered to be totally unusable if you want to be secure. So SHA-1 just had its first collision, so Google was able to create a message and then create another message that hashed to the same thing. The sort of note that's important to note about this is that Google controlled both messages. They didn't take something that's already been hashed with SHA-1 and then compute a new message that hashed to the same thing. So a second pre-image attack is one where I have a document A that hashes to a value and I can create a document B and have them both hash to the same value. That's Google right. was not able to do that. That's not what they did. Yeah. Yeah, and, and those, those tend to be scary because then you can take something like a certificate for a TLS connection that has already been generated and you might be able to like, you know, create a new one that hashes the same thing. That's not what Google did. But the thing with cryptographic hash functions is that as soon as the weaknesses start coming, they come fast. More difficulties are discovered and more ways to break them are found and they degrade rather quickly as far as things are concerned. So basically as soon as weaknesses start to appear... And weaknesses in SHA-1 started to appear around 2004. You want to start migrating off of them. I see. So SHA-1, I understand, was in the past a fairly popular hashing function. I guess probably still is. What are some of the applications that use SHA-1? Yeah, so SHA-1, yeah, very popular indeed. Some of the things that have come up that people are concerned about. So SHA-1 for a long time was used as a way to fingerprint TLS certificates. Google has been leading the effort to deprecate SHA-1 on TLS certificates for some time. So that's actually going pretty well, which is fantastic. And there are actually many people in the industry who thought that Google was kind of overreacting to SHA-1's weakening. And Google just kind of showed them all that, no, this is like, you know, a break was imminent. Mm. It's, time, it's time to migrate. So TLS certificates used to be hash for SHA-1. CAs that abide by sort of the 
regulations for that industry are not allowed to issue these certs anymore. So that's so, good. Can, so to be clear, can you make it clear why why it matters that they were using SHA-1? Like, what is actually the vector of attack if CAs were still using SHA-1 and SHA-1 were totally broken? Yeah, so if... I think this has happened once, I think, with an MD5, MD5 signed cert. Basically, an attacker was able to create a certificate which they could present with a private key they controlled that appeared to be the legitimate signed one of a website. And so this enables a full network interception person in the middle attack on TLS because you can then present this fake certificate that you control the private key for. But because the thing that is signed is the hash of that certificate, it's possible to you know have this kind of sort of duplication. So I believe this has been officially seen to have been happened and, and used in malware once with an MD5 certificate. There is not evidence that this has been done to a SHA-1 certificate yet, but if one was able to, and it seems likely that someone will be able to eventually, this would allow you to strip off the protections of TLS entirely. Wow, okay. Yeah. But SHA-1 has already been deprecated for It's been deprecated for CA certificates, yeah. Okay. So what, what other applications use SHA-1? So source control programs use a lot of it. Git uses SHA-1 to refer to objects and commits, and then if you're trying to use signed Git, where you have some sort of cryptographic proof of what changes occurred to a source tree, they're signing those hashes. So you might be able to create two Git repositories with the same hashes but different contents. And this is pretty concerning. SVN totally blows up if there's any sort of collision in its source tree. It appears that if you do put a colliding file in this, like this in SVN, it'll just kind of break the repository entirely. Other popular applications of SHA-1 include things like BitTorrent, and then all sorts of things. SHA-1 is very common. It's been used for a long time. The reason it's called SHA-1 is that it was, it was sort of the result of a standardizations process by, I believe, NIST, and so it kind of got this generic standard hashing algorithm name. They've since moved on to SHA-3, by the way. Hmm. Okay. So I know Git uses SHA-1. Mm-hmm. So Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux, has publicly claimed that Git is not vulnerable to any attacks based on SHA-1 collisions, or not any attacks, but with, you know, with some caveats. Can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, so Linus said that Git is not vulnerable because in addition to keeping track of the hash of objects, it also keeps track of their length. And because of how this collision attack works, it would be really hard to make two things that both hash to the same thing and have the exact same length. And so his claim was that Git is not really vulnerable because you wouldn't really be able to compute this collision in a way that Git would allow. Okay. However, I was not a huge fan of his response because, you know, he says it's not a huge problem, but this is something that I think Git should have sort of predicted. If the whole browser world and the CA world is moving off of SHA-1 onto something stronger, like, that's an incredibly, you know, molasses-like industry. It's very hard to get mm-hmm. them to move, but they were doing it, and they were doing it for these security reasons. And if the, you know, CA forum is kind of moving faster than you, I think that's something to be concerned about. So I think Git should have tried to migrate to SHA-2 or SHA-3 a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they take this opportunity to really make moves there now. Right. So one argument that I recall Linus making is that SHA-1 and really any, any hashing function that, that is using Git is not actually used for security so much as it's used to generate signatures and do deduplication and stuff like that. What do you think of that, that claim or that argument? I think that he sort of undermines it himself in his own post. Like, to quote from it, 
he says, so we do take advantage of some of the actual security features of a good cryptographic hash, and so breaking SHA-1 does have real downsides for us. Because this is, they're using crypto to sign trees based off SHA-1, and so the hash does end up being part of this chain of trust. And so for people who are expecting Git's signing features to really give them security, suddenly there's this sort of like missing component of it, which is that the security of the hash function underlying it is not good. So one thing that I should mention, which is something that I kind of learned about in this whole incident, which was really cool, which is this concept of counter cryptanalysis. So this is some research that's been going on to basically, let's say you know a function is weakened, like we know SHA-1 is now. Can you detect if a collision attack has occurred on a particular file? And it turns out, yes. So Google has released a tool where you can give it any sort of file and ask it, was this part of a collision attack? And you don't even need both files that were involved in the collision attack. You just need one of them. Hmm. And so what you can do is that you can analyze every file and try and see if there's someone who's trying to do some collision stuff and possibly mess with you. So this has actually already been added to Google Drive and Gmail. If you try and mail someone a colliding file, it, I think... I'm not sure the exact behavior, but I think it'll just reject it because it knows that something is up. And so Linus offered that, I think they've already built some patches that could allow you to run this counter crypt analysis on all objects in the Git source tree and therefore detect if someone is going to try and do some sort of collision attack against you. Okay. So given what Google was able to do, what sort of attack would actually be possible right now, given this discovery? So Google created two PDF files that look totally different, but have the same hash. And their sort of proposed theory was like, you send someone a, you know, a contract and ask them to sign it and they sign it and it's a, you know, a regular contract. And then you produce this second contract that looks very bad for them that you claim they signed. And then, you know, in court, you show that the SHA hash of your, your file is the same. And therefore this person is, you know, bound to this new contract. I think this, you know, this is a bit of a contrived example because I don't think they do a lot of SHA hashing inside <laughs> courtrooms. And also, you know, all you have to do is say, well, let's try it with SHA-256. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, so, so that was the sort of proposed one. If I were trying to attack this, it's, it's interesting. I think the Git one is actually a pretty interesting approach, especially now that there's so many companies that are using sort of Git as a source of truth for things like configuration and, you know, security critical code. Maybe you could create a commit that, you know, does something evil, but you can kind of slot in there. I think that could be really interesting. The BitTorrent one is also an interesting approach. I haven't seen a lot of people discussing this too much, but I think it might be possible to maybe poison a torrent by basically starting to seed bad bad shards of a file that are basically the result of a SHA collision and, you know, basically making people's files break when they download them. I think that would be a pretty interesting attack. Well, so but it is attacks, expensive. Are those attacks only possible with a second pre-image? Like, how can you do it if you only have... You can generate two files that, that hash to the same value, but you can't decide, you know, yeah. what yeah, the so, so that's be. the That's the thing, is you have to kind of make something that looks like it might be legit, and then, you know, kind of swap in your malicious one later. So it would only work in those sort of trust scenarios. Okay. So you'd have to generate trust first for the file. That's right. And then you could swap out a second file. But do you have arbitrary control over what's in that file, or is there some, you know, basically do you have to enter in a bunch of random garbage to make it hash to the same file? There's going to be a lot of random garbage, but it turns out there's a lot of file formats that are quite forgiving of this. So, like, they pick PDF because there's a lot of places you can, you know, stick binary garbage in a PDF and it won't complain at all. So, PDF's a good example of that. But there's also a lot of things where, like, types of files where, you know, you can have a lot of control of 
a particular section of bytes without affecting its functionality. Like an executable binary is a perfect example. It's quite easy to create a zone in a binary that is never called into or read from or anything like that and can just contain bytes. And in the normal execution of the program, they don't do anything, but they could be affecting the hash. Right. Right. So you mentioned earlier that this is a very expensive yes. attack, potentially. Can you give me an idea? What do you mean by an expensive attack, and how expensive exactly? Yeah, so although Google was able to do a collision, it's not like they just did it with long division. They used a huge amount of computing power in order to kind of generate the parameters that would be needed to do this. So I mentioned earlier that because you're hashing something that could be big into something small, there's always going to be a theoretical collision, right? And so, theoretically, if you just try any hash enough, you'll eventually find a colliding file. But the scale at which you'd have to try it enough is so large that it's not really something that's worth considering. We're talking about you know millions and millions of years of computation in order to find something that just might collide. So really, this is a way to efficiently create a collision, is what Google found. They used cloud compute resources that I think were from Google Compute Engine. Some people on the internet did some back-of-the-napkin math on how much this would cost for EC2 using its G2 8x large instances. The number they came to was $560,000 if you're using normal instances, but you can get that down to about $110,000 if you're using spot instances, which are the ones where you can't use them during peak times and you're kind of bidding on the price, but you can get them for a lot cheaper. Hmm. So about $100,000 to create a colliding file. That's not cheap. It's not something that, you know, I'm just going to go run off and do for fun. But you could potentially imagine a case where someone who's very advanced and well-funded might want to do this if they had a good enough reason. If there was a way to, you know, use this against a TLS cert, I think $100,000 for a TLS compromise of a particularly important connection might be valid. But again, this isn't a second pre-image attack. You'd have to do some tricky stuff. By tricky stuff, you mean actually getting two useful files that collide to the same value. That's right. Right. So... It sounds like, from what I'm hearing from you, that this is scary, but it doesn't actually amount to any immediately practical targeted attacks that you can really do. Yeah, I can't really think of any. It's more just a sign to the development and engineering community that any preconceptions they had about SHA-1 being safe are not correct. So, as I mentioned, it has been weakened since about 2004. There has been indication of it being pretty bad, but now, you know, now there's just more evidence of that. Right, right. Is it true that every cryptographic hash function is subject to the same sort of decay over time as computers get more powerful or they're subject to more analysis? Or have there been any cryptographic hash functions that have kind of just remained solid and not weakened over time? From what I know, everything has weakened, but I don't think that's necessarily a property that is inherent to them. So everything is sort of weakened over time. SHA-2, which is sort of like, you know, used in a lot of places right now and considered secure, there was some paper that was starting to show some minor weakness in it that was released around 2008. I wouldn't, you know, don't panic about it, but like that sort of thing is starting to show. SHA-3, which was standardized in 2012, has not yet been weakened as far as we know. Computers will continue to get more powerful, but with the lengths of hashes used by things like SHA-2 and SHA-3, it's still not feasible to, you know, just guess enough things to find a collision. And one thing that I should note is that even if quantum computers start working in the near term, there is not a known quantum algorithm that dramatically affects hash strength. So guessing a hash with a quantum computer is about as hard as it is with a traditional computer. Okay. So it sounds like this is really the death knell for SHA-1. Definitely. So how hard is it going to be to do all the work of refactoring code to get off of a weakened hash function and move on to something that's more robust? Uh, It's hopefully not that hard. 
SHA-2 has been around for quite some time now, and it should be pretty well supported by all the languages and frameworks out there. There are going to be changes you have to make. You know, you have to kind of have a transition plan so that you can still check data that is provided with SHA-1 and sort of have a sunset process there. But it shouldn't really be that hard. SHA-2 takes up slightly more space than SHA-1, but not that much more space. So there will be changes, but it's generally something that should not be unbelievably hard to do. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, great. So to wrap up the entirety of our discussion, which has been really, really fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing all your knowledge with me, by the way. What was the response from Airbnb to like seeing all these security issues? I know we don't use we don't use Cloudflare. Do we use SHA-1 for anything? Yeah, so I'm not going to say that we don't use SHA-1 anywhere. It, okay. it does pop up from time to time, but it's not something we put a lot of infrastructure on. You know, everything that has been written recently should be using SHA-2. And, you know, as a member of the security team, I try and make sure that happens. With this, like, sort of death knell, as you said, we can really start cracking down internally on existences of SHA-1, but it's not something that we've pinned a lot of security on, so it should be a pretty easy transition for us. And as you said, yeah, right. we, we didn't use Cloudflare, so, you know, got lucky on that one. Not affected. <laughs> sure, sure. And just in terms of how these recent events make you reflect on internet security on the whole, it seems to be kind of scary that there's there's one provider that you know, could have one bug that potentially compromises a very large portion of the internet. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you have any, any insight that you can share with me? Yeah, I mean, it is really scary. And, you know, you hope at some point that, like, the rate of big compromises or leaks slows down, and that really doesn't appear to have happened. You know, it would be hard to cut the time. But, like, at least for the last five to ten years, we've been seeing, like, increasingly large breaches and security compromises and all this sort of thing as you know, more people start doing research and more people discover these problems. And so that's worrying because you're like, you know, is it ever going to stop? Or are we ever going to have a secure internet? And it's always going to be hard. Right now, the advantage is definitely sort of on the attacker's side. Attackers theoretically have infinite time to find a bug. And that bug eventually will be something pretty severe. And so that is worrying. But over time, we do pick up knowledge that we can, you know, use to great effect. And we figure out techniques that really stop a lot of attacks. One thing that I would like to point to that has been really powerful for security in the last few years is the spread of two-factor authentication, particularly on like sort of internal management systems. Two-factor or multi-factor is a really strong you know, security guarantee that can help keep a lot of things safe, even if there are weaknesses or faults discovered. And in general, you always want to be designing these things so that one thing can fail and you always have more protections. And that's something that wasn't really done, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It was sort of that hard shell, soft center style for networks or security systems. And that's really changing. It's all about internal gating. It's all about monitoring things and knowing that stuff is going to fail, but being able to respond effectively and also contain the problem to something that you can manage. So that's something that we've learned over these years is that that's an approach that can work and it's an approach that is effective and it's something we want to keep doing a lot of so that hopefully when these things come up in the future, you know, we can easily identify kind of what it could have affected and contain the breach. Right. Well, Max, this has been a fascinating and terrifying discussion. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat with me and chat with our listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming up with these questions. It's been an interesting week and I love discussing it with you. Awesome. Awesome.